my health deteriorated until five years later, I was a complete cripple and homebound with teenagers. Every sound hurt my ears, every light hurt my eyes. The weight of clothing on my body was painful. And I was very, very often too sick to eat anything. But often I would have to stay in my room with the door shut because the smell of them cooking supper made me too ill to, to eat for another 12 to 24 hours. Writing a two-sentence instruction for a caregiver was beyond me for about five years. I could not finish a sentence, either verbally or in writing. That I would, my rehab, my hydration would start to rebalance, but the spironolactone was continually dehydrating me and causing a lot of long-term tissue damage. So that was one of the first medical mistakes it didn't get corrected until I took matters into my own hands in 2014. It, it was 20 years that I lived with a state of chronic cellular dehydration and nobody in all of the specialists I saw in that 20 years ever looked into the cause of my de dehydration. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. And in this episode, I interview author Jane Barnard. Jane was permanently harmed by medical error. Multiple doctors over multiple decades failed to investigate if the medication Jane was taking was causing chronic dehydration. Through her own research and tenacity, and in spite of a neglectful and ignorant medical care system, Jane has come back from years of being bedbound and non-functional and an inability to communicate to pursue her creative passion for writing. Jane is still quite disabled and needs oxygen and regular saline IVs in order to function for 15 minutes out of each hour. Recently, she started a new medication that allowed her body for the first time in 27 years to hold her head up without pain and collapse. Jane shares how she had to orchestrate her own diagnosis and treatment, 
how she managed to survive despite being severely sick and disabled and needing the support of her family, and how she created her own stranger-than-fiction narrative by producing award-winning writing and snagging a three-book publishing deal for the Falls Mysteries trilogy. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. Do you need the support of a counselor for dealing with your own medical error or living with a complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with author Jane Barnard. And a note of caution, some people may be upset by Jane's experience with the medical system. And I also like to start, uh, well, I like to go in chronological order to hear people's life experience. So where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in the military. Uh, My father was Air Force. So although I was born in Alberta, where I currently reside, it was up north in Cold Lake. Um, I don't remember anything about it, but apparently I was very ill there. as a child? As a child, yes. The, by my first birthday, I had spent quite a bit of time in the hospital. Oh. I don't know if that has any bearing on later. I didn't find that out until I was in my 30s. Um, yes. Just nobody in the family had mentioned to me that they were all terrified that I would be dead by my first birthday. Wow. And what was going on when you were such a young child? Uh, apparently, it started as a kidney infection, and that's all anybody remembers. Oh. Was, Days and days of high, very high fevers and lots of stress. And so it sounds like you sort of grew up uh, in the countryside. Well, no, that wouldn't be entirely accurate. Um, we moved from Cold Lake to, and I'm sure that as you as a psychologist will kind of see the implications of moving. Oh, 12 times in 14 years. Um, We lived in five different provinces, two U.S. states, and we lived in Germany for a while on a native base. Oh, wow. I learned to make make myself overcome my shyness quickly and make friends because if I didn't, I was going to be alone for the entire time that I was living in any one place. So I think that the greatest strength was that I learned nobody else could make my social life for me. I had to make it myself. And then after high school, what happened? Uh, After high school, I went to college, social work, Um, got married, got divorced, went back to university in psychology and theater. And just about the time I was getting ready to graduate, I got sick with ME. 
or got diagnosed with ME. Okay, so this would have been around 1990? Yeah, 1992 I was officially diagnosed. Okay, so tell me about that onset, sudden, slow. Well, you know, it's one of those things that you think a lot about when you have ME and you're stuck at home a lot, or any chronic illness that keeps you away from society. I think that it seemed sudden at the time, but in retrospect, the signs were there. I was under a lot of stress for several years as a single parent with a very um, controlling ex-spouse. Financially and legally in those days, there weren't very many protections for um, single parents or supports for single parents as far as that goes. Uh, and that has a parallel to my medical situation as well because there weren't a lot of supports for chronically ill people in 1992 where I was living either. During all that stress, I was in a very active semester of my theater degree. I was driving, my commute was 50 miles or about 70 kilometers a day each way to school. I was breathing, although I didn't know it at the time, aerosolized antifreeze from my car's heater. There was a mechanical malfunction and I was breathing it for that an hour each way every day during the winter. And I don't know if that was the trigger or the last straw or that it simply overloaded my system to the point where when I got an opportunistic infection in about late March toward the end of my final semester of theater school, I uh, got an opportunistic infection. I kept going to school after the first day that I stayed home, tried to fight it off. I had such severe cognitive impairment that I rear-ended somebody outside my campus with my car because I was just literally didn't realize what the red light meant in time to stop. And the person in front of me did. And that's when I went to my doctor and said, something is seriously wrong here. Please figure out what it is. So prior to having that opportunistic infection, what were some of the symptoms you were experiencing prior to that? Well, I had always had an abnormal response to exercise, literally as long as I can remember in my life. Although I was very fit, um, I was a runner. Uh, I thought nothing of taking a five or 10 mile walk with my girlfriends just to chat. Uh, I hiked. I bicycled, I swam a few miles every week. I was generally well-rounded and in good shape, but I always had, after 48 hours, a period of quite severe muscle pain. I realized after I learned that there was such a thing of, as post-exertional um, exacerbation of symptoms, that's now one of the, the most recognized hallmarks of ME, that the genetic underpinnings of post-exertional malaise were always there with me. My sister was resilient enough to recover for a long, long time, but eventually I reached a tipping point and 
it was like a switch flipped and I never recovered again. I could barely walk two blocks where I used to run two miles. Wow. So that's uh, pretty disabling at that point. So that was in the spring. spring so to, yeah. go to your doctor and how did that go? Um, the GP wanted to send me to a psychiatrist. <laughs> I think that's pretty much a universal. A woman comes in with unexplained wide-ranging symptoms, obviously it must be psychological, right? All in her head. So how did that, uh, how did that make you feel? What was your response to your GP? I was slightly shocked, but I also knew that the small Saskatchewan town I was living in at the time was a highly patriarchal place and male doctors routinely gave that response to women first. So I kept insisting because I was a, you know, good feminist and not afraid to speak my mind. And eventually he sent me to the town's only internal medicine specialist. And I have to say that despite this internal medicine specialist being an older man, almost at retirement age already, he was very kind, very concerned, and very dedicated to figuring out what was going on with me. Um, that in the two years that I saw him, he never once made me feel like I was imagining anything or exaggerating anything. Wow, so very opposite uh, your GPs. Oh, absolutely. Um, and he did help my GP take me seriously. He also referred me to um, the nearest city's diabetic and metabolic clinic, which officially diagnosed me with what was then known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And how long did it take to get that diagnosis and what was your reaction to that? It took less than three months from the day I walked into the, uh, to the internal medicine office. Uh, so I was in that sense, far more fortunate than a lot of people. I had a diagnosis very early. The downside of that was the specialist who diagnosed me said, I'm really sorry, there is absolutely nothing we can do for you. Go home and get some rest. And that was really crushing. I had thought that I was at the very start of my career I'd been in the peak of physical fitness. I was finally um, you know, getting divorced from the ex-husband who was uh, a terrible thorn in my side. And then this landed on me like a ton of bricks. And honestly, I think if I didn't have small children that I would have had to leave with my ex-husband, I probably would have suicided right then. My, my life was crashing down around me. So you would, uh, you're quite sick and basically the doctor's telling you that there's nothing that they can do for you. And so all of the loss that you're experiencing at that time just seemed permanent. Yes. Although the internal medicine specialist um, prescribed me steroids, which kept me on my feet 
for the next two years. Um, he also, and this is the first, I think, of the two medical mistakes that changed the course of my life after that diagnosis. He prescribed aldosterone to wash out the excess uh, adrenal hormones out of my system. And it's a steroid? Yeah, I'm, try I'm trying to remember the no, spironolactone to wash out the... Uh, what he didn't realize was that by pushing my system, it acts as a diuretic and it continually flushes fluids out of the system. And he didn't realize that by pushing fluids out of my system continuously, when my adrenals were already unbalanced, he was putting me into a deep state of chronic dehydration, uh, which literally made everything else worse. Now I have alcoholics in my family tree and I'm aware that you know alcohol shrinks and expands every cell as the dehydration dehydration process continually um, works through and that's very damaging to uh, the alcoholic physiology. I didn't realize that the same thing was happening to me that I would have a reprieve from stress and everything that I would, my rehab, my hydration would start to rebalance, but the spironolactone was continually dehydrating me and causing a lot of long-term tissue damage. Um, so that was one of the first medical mistakes. It didn't get corrected in, until I took matters into my own hands in 2014, uh, which is way down the road in terms of my life. And the other... Oh, sorry, 2014. Yes. Oh, that's like 22 years later. In my head, I did the math and it was like two years, but... No, it, it was 20 years that I lived with a state of chronic cellular dehydration. And nobody in all of the specialists I saw in that 20 years ever looked into the cause of my de dehydration. This is, I think, the other major problem, not just for me, but globally with ME-CFS, is that we are so terrified of being written off as mentally ill or somaticizing our physical, creating our illness through belief, that we stay away from uh, psychologists, from counselors. And I really desperately needed grief counseling at that point. And I needed desperately someone to help me make sense of the absolute turmoil of my psychological state. And I didn't have that. I carried a deep, deep burden of grief for about 25 years. It's only been in the last five years that I have uh, been able to start to process that. And this grief is for? Everything I lost lost my career, I lost most of my friendships, I lost the ability to raise my children the way I wanted to, I lost my great joy in further education. I was 30 years old and functionally I'd lost my entire life plan in the space of about four months. And I had to keep it together for my children because the rest of their family was not going to be any help with them and would probably 
have made matters worse for both of them. So, so I think that as an adjunct to any significant diagnosis like that, there ought to be a mechanism whereby the doctor who gives you the diagnosis says, this is a psychologist or therapist or priest or somebody who understands the grief involved in chronic illness. And they will help you adjust to your new reality. I think that mind and body are not as separate as we would like to believe, but I certainly, from personal experience, understand why people with ME are very leery about going anywhere near a psychiatric or psychology, psychological referral. It is sort of a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, there's all of the grief and loss that you're talking about that we experience. And on the other hand, we are so um, discriminated against within the medical system because of psychologists and that psychological paradigm. Mm -hmm. So fast forward eight years. This all happened in 1992 and eight years later, I was um, met my second husband, moved to Calgary where I still live did not realize that being chronically dehydrated and moving to what is essentially a desert and a very high elevation desert was going to put an increased strain on my already quite fragile coping systems. I had recovered and I should say that I had been kind of relapsing and remitting all the way for in the inter intervening eight years. I had recovered enough to go back to work occasionally. I had recovered enough to finish my last few courses and graduate. But ultimately, I was very, very badly impaired in terms of daily functioning. Um, and after we moved to Calgary, the altitude has a diuretic effect. I don't know if you've ever encountered altitude sickness, if you've been a mountain climber or anything, but one of the the key elements of altitude sickness is that your body sheds fluids like crazy. One of the most dangerous things for mountain climbers is to get dehydrated. So here I was in this very high dry desert. Um, my house is at approximately the same elevation as the main street of Banff and the mountains. We, are, we live in the highest elevation city in Canada. So that was all a great strain on my coping mechanisms. And literally from the day I arrived here, my health deteriorated until five years later, I was a complete cripple and homebound with teenagers. Wow, so very isolated, uh, very disabled. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you'd also require some care. Yeah. And I did eventually, we tried several care arrangements. None of them really worked well. Um, I was literally too sick to have care, if that makes sense to people. Uh, can, you, I think, can you sort of describe how, how can that be? And I'm talking to you and I'm having a fairly normal conversation in terms of my sentences mostly connect um, I can make eye contact as much as we can through the camera. Uh, my eyes are open. 
there is light in the room. When I first started fighting my way back in 2012-ish, I had been under the care of one of Alberta's only ME specialists and gotten worse um, for about six years before that. But at, that, at the time I was, every sound hurt my ears, every light hurt my eyes, the weight of clothing on my body was painful, and I was very, very often too sick to eat anything. Occasionally I could put a few spoonfuls of soft serve ice cream into the system. Um, and otherwise, my family made me little bits of mashed potatoes with chicken broth and things like that. But often I would have to stay in my room with the door shut because the smell of them cooking supper made me too ill to, uh, to eat for another 12 to 24 hours. So extremely sensitive to light, sound, odors, probably movement. Yeah, so very isolating, darkness. And the thing with caregivers is that caregivers need instructions. They need you to be able to think clearly, to lay out the steps that they need to do, to tell them where to find everything in the house. Now, I'm a writer and I've wanted to be, to write books since I was in third grade. I've always communicated quite well on the page, but writing a two sentence instruction for a caregiver was beyond me for about five years. I could not finish a sentence either verbally or in writing. So is this a cognitive and or physical uh, challenge at that point? I, looking back, I put it down to uh, lack of blood flow to the brain and lack of oxygen, as you, you can see, but of course the people listening won't see, is I have an oxygen can, cannula on my face all the time, and because of where I live, it's humidified. Oxygen was a great help in starting my brain waking up. But I think the biggest change, in fact, I know the biggest change came from what looked at first like another major disaster, medically speaking. As part of taking charge of my own care, I eventually realized that I was severely dehydrated, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And I began drinking um, rehydration fluids instead of just plain water. Uh, following the World Health Organization's emergency rehydration, field rehydration um, recipe that I found on the internet. And as some more fluids got into my system, and as I had oxygen in my system, my brain began to slowly wake back up. And it was about a two-year process just of changing up and paying attention to rehydration and fluid loss. Again, in, the, in all of these years, I had seen multiple specialists, cardiac specialists, endocrinologists, um, respirologists, 
you name it, I've probably seen it, and none of them mentioned hydration status to me. It didn't occur to any of them that a woman who was so mummified that you could barely get a needle through my skin might have a problem with fluid. It's such a, such a very basic element of health. You would think they would look at it as part of your normal checkup. I do not understand how anybody could have looked at me and not seen that this fundamental element of my body was going wrong. So I, to this day, I don't know if I have mild ME or medium ME or severe ME because there have been so many other things gone wrong in the intervening years. Ah, right. So this 22 years of being chronically dehydrated uh, has caused uh, more damage to your body. So you're also challenged by whatever effects those are having. Exactly. Um, my liver function has been impaired. Uh, my uh, blood vessels have been impaired. And genetically, I don't process out heavy metals or other toxins very well. When you can't process out toxins, your body stores them. They wrap fat around them and get them out of the way. So my body is, is a, a toxic waste dump now because I have never had the fluid status to just wash out toxins that would normally be excreted in urine. Right, so this accumulation day after day, month, year after year. 20 years of, as well as the childhood burden of DDT exposures and a brief exposure to um, farm pesticides and herbicides in my early 20s, um, I have just the, the exposures of daily living have all built up in my body to the point where if I actually start to burn fat, I get very violently ill. It's like I'm being poisoned. Oh, wow. That's a unique challenge to have to deal with. I think it's less unique than we realize. So lots of other folks out there that have a high body burden of toxic chemicals that they're also not able to get rid of for whatever reasons. Whenever they lose fat, they'll also experience this sickness as well. Yeah, and I think what um, in the ME community, and I, I am a, you know, quite active in the online community because I want to give back to the people who kept me alive on in online support groups when I was at my sickest, an administrator on a couple of online support groups, and I hear and see an awful lot of people around the world, across Canada and around the world, with very similar symptom patterns to mine. There's a fairly consistent push in the ME community towards its mold toxicity or its Lyme disease. I'm sure that those are problems for a lot of people. I'm very mold sensitive myself, but just clearing mold out of your system doesn't fix you. And I think with ME, the more we get into it, the more we're gonna find that 
it's a slightly different disease for every one of us who has it. My particular combination of genetic vulnerabilities and my lifetime chemical exposures combined to give me this particular form of ME, but the next person may have different um, genetic vulnerabilities and different exposures and different medical experiences. Um, increasingly in the ME community now, there is a realization that IV saline is a huge benefit. And that's the biggest change for me. Oh, when we were talking about uh, 2014, as I began in 2012 to look at rehydration, one of the things that came up was, and you know, pardon me if this seems like a lot of information, but when you're dealing with medical stuff, you get pretty comfortable talking about bodily functions. He said, I urinate a lot frequently, large volumes. And I was having to get out of bed several times a day and several times at night. And I wasn't ever able to really rest for more than about an hour or two at a stretch because I had to keep getting up to go to the bathroom. I was watching one of many online videos of experts talking about ME and someone mentioned just as an aside, it was Dr. de Muller, the Belgian expert on ME, mentioned almost as an aside in an interview that they treat every one of their ME patients for diabetes insipidus um, immediately when they walk into the clinic. They give them a questionnaire, and if they urinate frequently, they give them an antidiuretic. Now I had to, in order to convince my GP to give me an antidiuretic, I had to go to a cardiologist and have blood work and jump through medical hoops for six months to get a pediatric dose of an antidiuretic spray that would allow me to sleep for eight hours without getting up to go to the bathroom. But that was a huge step, of course, towards addressing my bodily burden of dehydration, simply able, being able to reserve that fluid that was otherwise constantly going out. The downside, which nobody mentioned to me, was that this antidiuretic has the side effect of gradually washing out sodium and destabilizing your electrolytes. Well, I'd already been through years of cardiac investigations for destabilized electrolytes. So in my mind, there is absolutely no reason why you would not tell me that up front. There's a possibility that this is going to further destabilize your electrolytes. So here are some things we could do to make sure that doesn't happen, but you will still be able to rest overnight and not lose fluids and so on. No, nobody told me that. So I was out trying the other, or one of the other great um, ME cures, which is a geographical cure. And I think every alcoholic in the world knows the geographical cure routine. If I go somewhere else, it'll be different. Oh. Every um, adult child of an alcoholic knows that one. Everyone who's been to programs for spouses and family members of alcoholics has certainly heard that one. If you go someplace else, you think it will be different, but you are still taking all your problems along. 
Well, that's certainly true in my case. I went to sea level, the seashore off the west coast of Canada, where I had lived briefly as a child, and I felt very comfortable there. So when we were looking at places to get me out of this arid desert for the winter to see if that would help, we found a place, a nice little apartment, furnished, manageable, all one level, that I could stay in for the winter with you know, family visiting and support. But I made what I consider one of my great medical mistakes. I didn't fully investigate the effects of my antidiuretic medication, and I didn't realize that being in a nice, humid climate was going to change how much fluid I needed. So my sodium levels dropped slowly over the succeeding 10 weeks to the point where I was nearly comatose. So the extra humidity caused greater uh, sweating, so you're losing more of the sodium? I lost more sodium through sweat and I lost, and I wasn't replacing it fast enough to account for what the diuretic was washing out every day. And because the symptoms of hyponatremia or low sodium are almost identical to the symptoms of post-exertional malaise, nausea, aching, brain fog, and so on, nobody around me realized that I was getting into a critically dangerous state either. It looked just like another ME crash. Um, my landlord, who hadn't known me that long, saw me and said, I have to take you to emergency. You're not well. And he did, and they did a, you know, the basic blood work that they do in an emergency room. And they came back and hooked me up to a high saline IV for the next 48 hours. And I had neurological damage for the next two years. What does that mean? Uh, for me, it meant I had visual distortions, uh, auditory hallucinations. I heard phones ringing all the time, old phones, not cell phones, old phones ringing all the time in distant rooms. And it was like someone had taken about a two inch drill and cord straight through my, my memory. Uh, I would be able to start uh, a story about, for example, going camping in 2005. I would get three sentences in and I would literally remember nothing else but the experience. I would look at a, a book or a movie and I would remember that I had read it. I would remember maybe two things about it, but I I ran into walls all over the place where the memories that used to be there were simply missing. The knowledge that was there was simply missing. Has that been a permanent effect? Uh, in some senses. Now, I, I was seeing a, a neurologist and being retested annually. And I regained about 15% of my lost cognitive ability uh, a year until I was back up to what they consider baseline, which means I can answer the questions of what day it is and draw the hands on a, a clock and all of those 
simple little things, but a lot of the memories are still gone. And that's both a blessing and a curse because for so many years, I was filled with grief and helpless rage that it was a burden on my soul. And the blessing part is that a lot of those memories, those, those almost visceral memories of pain and anguish and despair were broken. I don't remember them as anywhere near as clearly anymore. I know that they happened. I could look at my journals, what journals exist of those um, years and see that it was very, that it was a very dark place, but, but I don't clearly remember them anymore. And I think that's kind of a relief. Yeah, it, when you're describing it, it sort of sounds like trauma. Um, so yeah, to be without those traumatic memories and feelings and all that goes along with that, that does sound like a good thing. Mm. I wouldn't recommend this as a regular form. <laughs> no. <laughs> just to be clear. Yes, just to be clear. So uh, you're on the West Coast. Uh, your landlord, luckily... <laughs> Takes you to the hospital. My landlord didn't know anything about any, yes. And uh, you get rehydrated. Yeah, and I have to say that one of the great nightmares of people with ME is that they're going to end up in a hospital with nobody to speak for them and no doctors who, quote, believe in ME around them. Um, But fortunately, there was a measurable quantifiable problem with me so they treated that and then they released me to my husband's care and the interesting thing was that after I was fully rehydrated for the first time like virtually my all the blood in my body had been replaced with IV fluids but the other benefits were that became apparent as I recovered from this hospitalization that my muscles moved in ways they hadn't been able to move in 20 years. Every joint in my body flexed better. My brain, despite the huge gap in the middle of it, was able to think through the stages of a problem again. And that to me was a huge benefit because suddenly I had the resources of what used to be a reasonably good brain to focus on my health issues again. Um, Rehydration, IV rehydration was huge for me. Uh, Not the recommended way of getting it, but it, it freed up so many pieces of my body. Now, admittedly, I was quite ill after that because I had lost 22 pounds through being too fogged up to eat and um, too nauseous from the hyponatremia on top of the ME. But the freedom to move my body and not have it hurt was huge. Um, the so big boost in quality of life. Absolutely, almost overnight. Um, I danced at my niece's wedding that summer for three and a quarter minutes, but nobody had expected me to be able to stand up at all. So 
it was it was a huge victory for me after 20 years of decreasing health to actually be on a dance floor for three three and a quarter minutes. But then I started researching and realized that an awful lot of people with ME were also getting really good benefits with IV saline. Now, Dr. David Bell, who's one of the, the pioneers of uh, CFS research in the United States, had experimented at one point with giving his patients a liter of IV saline a day. And it cleared up most of their symptoms of orthostatic intolerance, and it cleared up their cognitive um, fog, and it really improved their quality of life, but it all washed out again the next day. Now, I don't know why he didn't think of using antidiuretics in combination with IV saline, but apparently he didn't. Okay, so what happened next in your life? And what year are we at? 2014? Yeah, this was in 2014. I was hospitalized, brain damaged. I spent the next two years basically rebuilding. And I tried to get my doctor to prescribe, my GP to prescribe IV saline by telling her the benefits and the history of it with ME. And she said there was no mechanism in the public system to do such a thing. And the, all of the mainstream doctors I've talked to have been very suspicious of IV saline as any kind of benefit at all. They, to them, it's reserved for emergency treatments only, and they don't realize that people with ME are living in a medical emergency every day. I was very fortunate um, because uh, my husband has a job with benefits that I was able to find a functional medicine doctor to prescribe me IV saline and I pay for it uh, partly through my benefits and partly out of pocket and I get IV saline every three weeks in a dry climate and every four weeks in a wet climate to keep my sodium balanced and um, to keep my fluids up. I have doubled the amount of steps I can take before I collapse from postural orthostatic symptoms and I um, process foods better, I spend less time nauseous, I think more clearly and best of all from 2014 on I was able to write again. Mm. And for me the writing getting back to that dream that I thought was lost forever was, was a huge boost, indescribably huge boost for me psychologically. And so it sounds like you've been uh, pretty steady since then in this sort of new Weller place? Yes. Um, I still have my ups and downs. Uh, a cold will put me to bed for a month. Um, I have days where I have to keep all the lights low because the light is, any bright lights hitting my eyes are physically painful. Um, I can't drive in traffic because I still cannot deal with the constant influx of visual stimuli that has to be processed. Uh, I still live a very quiet and fairly isolated life, but I am well within the confines of my home now as opposed to being ill within the confines of my home. Mm -hmm. So your family during all of this, how, what was their reaction? 
Collectively, they wanted to be supportive. I will say that. Uh, individually, they all had struggles with the new reality. I was kind of a super mom before. And when it all collapsed, it was a huge burden on my oldest daughter. She was uh, 14 then. She had to assume a lot of the functions of the head of the household. Uh, she made the grocery lists. She made sure her brother got to school on time. For a, for a while there, she made sure I ate. And she did all this while she was dealing with the usual teenage um, issues. So for her, uh, it was quite a burden and she did end up in therapy to deal with that in her early 20s. Uh, she was just forced to grow up very, very quickly. And part of it, I think, too, is that she lived in a state of overwhelming fear that her only reliable parent was going to die on her. Mm. And that was really terrifying for her. So she suffered a bit from that. Uh, my son, who was younger, was buffered a bit by the fact that his sister stepped up. But he's also been very resentful of the fact that I wasn't there for him as a teenager. I was incapable of being the mother that he needed. Um, and he's never quite accepted that there is a genuine physical illness at the bottom of this. And he carries a huge burden of um, anger that he feels like he was betrayed by both his parents, by his um, undesirable father and by his mother whose physical frailty just made her unavailable. Uh, my second husband knew that I was, that I had CFS as the diagnosis was when I married him. And we thought that by me no longer having to work outside the home to maintain my separate dwelling, that I would get better. And instead I got worse and worse and worse. Uh, so for him, it was a quite a long period of adjustment. And he's not a natural caregiver, so he had to learn a lot of skills he wasn't comfortable with for quite a while. Uh, when I got better enough that it was obvious I was not going to die immediately, uh, we kind of redressed that balance. Uh, my daughter finished university, my oldest daughter finished university, moved back home, and we sent my husband to fulfill one of his lifelong dreams. We sent him to sail across the Atlantic Ocean on a tall ship. Oh, wow. Yeah, he trained for a year and he was gone for seven months. And I, th I think for him that was, that was a healing and an affirmation that he really needed. Illness tends to take over the whole family. And one of the things that even at my sickest I knew was that I didn't want to take it over any further. So um, my husband would take the children hiking on the weekend and they would take pictures every so often. And then they would bring it home and put it into a slideshow for me so that I could rest and they could still share the adventure with me. But again, if I didn't have a degree in child psychology behind me, 
I wouldn't have known those things. So I really feel for patients with ME who don't have the resources of education and information accessibility that I had. I always had an internet connection. I always had um, the knowledge of statistics to help me uh, evaluate the studies that were coming out or the claims of some supplement or other. Uh, I had tremendous advantages. And even so, the lack of medical support nearly killed me multiple times. So you got back into writing your passion almost like you had a, a second chance at life. Absolutely. Um, the book, When the Flood Falls, which I think you have a copy of now. Yeah. Um, I started that book in 2004. And I got about a third of the way in, and then I was too sick to keep going. It took me three years to get a third of the way in before I finally couldn't put sentences together enough anymore. And I had the character of Jan in it, and Jan has Emmy. Jan is as old as I was when I was diagnosed, but she had um, finished school, so she was giving up. A, she, she lost a career when she was diagnosed. But what I wanted to show from, and Jan is not the main character, she's the secondary character. Ostensibly, this book is a you know, a crime novel, suspense. Um, but Jan is the secondary character. She's the secondary sleuth, if you will. And she lays at home and looks at what's going on in her neighborhood and puts pieces together that people who are more active don't slow down enough to see them. What I really wanted to do with the character of Jan was show some of the stigma that was attached to ME-CFS just from other people not understanding what it is. There's a huge amount of um, automatic assumptions that go with when you see somebody who looks fairly healthy when you see them on the outside, but who doesn't work, who stays home, who doesn't even do their own housework or their own yard work, who doesn't look after their children. Uh, society values productivity a lot. Um, and so what I wanted to show when I started writing Jan was what's behind that curtain of on the rare days when you're well enough to go out. All of the life that is back there and some of the sci uh, science behind MECFS and so on. But because I started it in 2004, I had a lot of um, upgrading to do in terms of Jan's condition. I didn't change her life when I upgraded it. Her life is constrained, mostly at home. She's very sensitive to sights, sounds, smells. She's very vulnerable to the latest, greatest treatment opportunities. Um, at one point in the book, she's trying stimulants because the doctor told her, well, we'll just boost your system a little bit and that'll give you the energy you need to get through the day. Now, personally, I never tried stimulants, um, but I ran the scene where Jan is dealing with the stimulant fallout past a friend of mine who's also a psychologist who also has ME, and she 
read it aloud to her husband and said, is that accurate for what I'm like when I was on stimulants? And he said, absolutely. You were just as much of a bitch. <laughs> so obviously I, I got that right based on just, and I was writing from my experience of what it's like if I drink high test coffee. So, but apparently uh, I did manage to get the symptoms right. And I put that down to understanding what stimulants really do to a body that is in a current energy brown or a constant state of energy brownout. Now we know, now I hypothesized in 1998 based on what I could glean from the internet that there was going to be a mitochondrial connection to ME, that there was going to be an impairment in, in aerobic energy production. And here we are, finally, more than 20 years later, scientists actually started doing those tests. And what did they find? They found uh, impairments in aerobic energy production in ME-CFS patients. It's a robust finding. It is all over the world completely discrete labs and patient populations. It shows up again and again and again. We are in a permanent state of rolling brownouts. It's really no wonder that our bodies present with these bewildering arrays of symptoms because we literally do not have enough energy to run both our immune system and our temperature regulation in the same day. And if we're standing up and we're also having to deal with gravity, we're putting ourselves that much further behind the eight ball. So it's a testament to the fact that my brain has come back a long way, that I could even contemplate writing a character who would show all that, that it wouldn't read like a science textbook. Are there any other fictional characters with M.E.? I have talked to a few people in the online support groups who have written about ME, but I would say 99% of it is writing about their own personal experiences from a nonfiction standpoint. And I want to say as a creative person, there are lots of very creative people with ME, I belong to groups for that too, um, that sometimes it is easier and more complete more more manageable way to process your grief to put it onto a fictional character. I did a lot of grieving when I was writing Jan's scenes where she's laying on a chaise in her sunroom watching everyone else go off to the social event of the season and knowing that because she was out of the house three days ago there is no way in hell she can go. That she's going to miss all of her friends and neighbors yet again. I processed a lot of my grief by detaching from it, by putting it onto her. And as a psychologist, you may understand kind of the coping structure of this. Literally being too sick to grieve is a fact of life for a lot of people with severe ME. And distancing yourself a bit from it by putting it onto a fictional character can make it just bearable enough that you can manage it in short spurts. It was therapeutic to, to write oh, her character. Oh, very therapeutic. 
uh, the first author who read it to give me feedback on it said, oh, she's so depressing. You've got to lighten that up. And I thought, well, she was right. From a commercial fiction standpoint, it had to be toned down to where normally healthy people could deal with Chan's life. But the feedback that I'm getting from the ME community is that I have managed to stay true to the ME experience while still um, making it palatable to people of normal health. So they learn from reading about Jan, um, and they get entertained by this mystery, and they get to experience the glorious part of the world that I do live in, even though I don't get to see much of it. And I like to think that that's my public service. Not only was it a good grief processing experience for me, uh, and it gave me back a way into my passion, but I think it's also a, a, an outreach. For me, it's outreach to people who, mystery readers all over Canada, the United States, and the UK, who have never knowingly dealt with anybody with ME, now have a way to, uh, a framework in their head already. This is a real illness. This is what it looks like. And if you know somebody who has it, be compassionate. I'm curious, what was Jane's experience with the medical system? Uh, Jan has... Oh, Jan. Sorry. Jan, yeah. This, I know it's very confusing because <laughs> truthfully, she is largely based on me. There's no way around that. Um, that. I don't go into a lot of that with Jan, but I do have the very first time you meet her, she's being judged as a, as a drug addict and or psychologically troubled person rather than as an ill person and one of the other characters has to go through the process of understanding how she has misjudged Jan's life. When you say that your writing is, uh, did you use the word outreach? Outreach, yes. Outreach, yeah. I've, I maintain that because the dominant narrative around ME is the psychological, which is so harmful to millions of people, that it's, uh, I don't want to say it's incumbent upon the ME community, but it's helpful for the ME community to write our own narratives, to create our own media, to get our, uh, the proper narrative out there. So I, I totally see how your book with uh, the character with ME, Jan, um, also sort of fits under that rubric. Well, thank you. That's really what I was going for. So... What's life like now? What's a typical day for you? Mm. A typical day for me is about 45 minutes per hour of lying on my chaise in my fairly dim living room. <laughs> Maybe the light behind me is not the way I normally look. Um, I'm looking towards the completely vine-covered windows on the other side. It's it's very green. There are a lot of plants. Um, I'm here 45 minutes per hour, and the other 15 minutes per hour, uh, I do, you know, make my tea. I putter around. I sometimes clean things up. Uh, I sometimes, you know, go outside. But basically, I am lying down or reclining. Uh, I was just at a new internal specialist's last week. And my husband was with me, 
and he said, you know, we went through what my current set of most troubling symptoms are and what I need looked at. And he said, okay, so in terms of your functioning, you know, how bad is it? And I said, you know, I'm lying down for 45 minutes per hour and, uh, and I have to be careful to move slowly the rest of the time. And he said, oh, that sounds terrible. And I looked at my husband and said, that's the best I've functioned in the last 15 years. <laughs> to me, 15 whole minutes that I can reliably do things around my house, that is huge. That's a level of functioning I thought I'd never get back. Yeah, for healthy people, that's really going to be hard for them to wrap their head around that every mm -hmm. hour... You know, you're basically resting up for 45 minutes so that you can sort of putter around for 15 minutes. That's right. I use the, the um, cell phone battery analogy a lot when I'm explaining it to people. You know, if you have a flaky battery on your phone or your iPad, you can charge it up all day and then use it for five minutes and then it's flat again. So you don't use it unless it's an emergency because you're going to have to recharge it again right away. That is a good analogy. People are familiar with their cell phone batteries. Oh yeah. So when do, uh, when do you fit in the writing part? And are you able to do that being horizontal? Have you set things up that way? Oh yeah, I'm very well set up now. Um, I used to try to actually sit up at a desk long enough to write and by the second hour, even if my feet were up, I had to be wearing a neck brace to support my head, and I had to have wrist braces, and I had to um, wear a shoulder brace to keep my arm, the, the sheer weight of my arms from dragging on the nerves of my shoulders. So that was not sustainable in terms of writing. And um, now I write, I have my laptop that is sitting on a wheeled hospital table that rolls under and off my chaise. I have a lightweight uh, ergonomic keyboard and mouse that can rest on my lap. Uh, I have always got multiple pillows behind me so that I can adjust the support so that I'm not sitting in exactly the same position all the time. And for the last two, the two follow-up books to When the Flood Falls, I have uh, learned finally, or my voice has actually gotten strong enough that I can dictate to my phone. Um, so I dictate a scene to my phone and my phone sends it as text to my laptop. And then a day or a week later, whenever I'm you know, recovered from that mental exertion, I can work my way through with the keyboard and the mouse and the laptop and fix the spelling errors and change the emotional tone and do all the, the editing things that come in. But the ability to just speak the scene as it comes to me or to speak some of the dialogue as it comes to me is not only a huge benefit to me now, but it was impossible when I first got sick. Um, the, the technology didn't exist then voice-to-text programs that I tried 15 years ago were simply too rudimentary and I didn't have the strength 
to survive the training of them to recognize my voice. So it's a combination of things and it still takes me a very long time to write anything because I have to rest so much in between. But if I couldn't write, I feel I would feel I feel like I would not be fulfilling my purpose on earth and it would be much harder to maintain hope and optimism. So that your process has got to be unique. I, I just think of authors as, you know, being in their space at their computer um, and putting their thoughts onto the keyboard. But your extra step of verbalizing it seems way different than how authors work. It's counterintuitive for me too. <laughs> I am not a verbal person. I had to be in speech therapy as a little kid because I just didn't talk. I didn't like talking. I wasn't comfortable talking. I three years of theater school, I can fake a conversation like this. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was quite a change in my process. Uh, I, I wrote the very, my first practice novel, the one that has never been published. I wrote it out in longhand sitting in coffee shops in between going to university. And that was my escape from university. And then I typed it and edited while I typed. And for me, the, the, it took a lot for me to learn to just verbalize and trust that I could verbalize well and clearly enough to make it worth doing, that it actually would save me time and energy to dictate my novels. So now I've dictated two and a half complete novels. Um, and they're in a series? Uh, yes. I have just turned in the third book uh, of the Falls Mysteries. When the Flood Falls, the one that you have, is the first one. Uh, it won the Unhanged Arthur, which is Canada's top prize for a pre-published or for an unpublished mystery manuscript back in 2016. And on the strength of that, uh, Dundurn Press, which um, sponsors the contest, offered me a three book contract. Wow. Yeah. And very fortunately, I had in the mists of time started two other books with these characters. And I had done a lot of the, the thinking. See, there's no law that says when I'm laying here resting, I can't be thinking about what my characters are going to do next. So that's what saves me is that, is that I can plot and plan and think about and try out things in my head when I can think clearly enough so that the actual you know, writing or dictating time goes a little smoother. So yes, I have now a, a trilogy with Lacey, the main sleuth, and Jan, the Emmy character, and their other friend, Dee, who is the common bond between these two very disparate people, the one very athletic ex-Mountie and the completely socially isolated stay-at-home Emmy patient. So I have a trilogy, and, and it deals with not just the mysteries, but their lives and their adjustments. And I'm really happy now that I've turned in the third book, Why the Rock Falls, that I'm leaving them all in a good place, Jan included, because Jan has taken advantage of some of the new research 
and she's found some treatments that work and she's found some ways of managing her life that give her hope and allow her to move back into, in a limited way, the job that she thought she'd lost forever. And I'm really hoping that the readers of the three books will be able to follow that journey for themselves in their own lives. It is not just the reality is terrible and awful and forever, but there is always some hope somewhere that there will be a medical or a social or a psychological benefit that they can access that will give them some quality of life back. Because we all know Emmy is forever. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that we have to stop living. It kind of occurs to me that uh, you're sort of making lemonade out of lemons. Oh, yeah. And it's very salty lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I've talked to a, a number of people now who've been very ill, bed-bound, um, no quality of life, lost their hope for the future, and then through their own individual stories um, have either totally recovered or have become, you know, fairly functional like yourself. So all of those years when your hopes and dreams were shattered, gone, it must have been a big period of adjustment getting your health back, even though it's a positive thing. That is a really wonderful question or statement. Uh, it was uh, at every stage of recovery I have always been afraid that it's a false recovery. That, that I will do one thing wrong and I will collapse the whole house of cards again. Every time you take another step, the uh, walking, for example, for years I didn't walk at all. In 2013, my goal was to be able to walk 50 steps. And it took me three and a half months at sea level in the perfect climate to achieve that. But I can only do it if I rest every 20 steps. But the act of taking a step off a sidewalk was huge for me. What if I fell? What if I, the potential for catastrophe is, is huge. And it is a real act of faith when you have been constrained as tightly as I was constrained just to stay alive. Every time you make another advance, it is a huge act of faith that this one extra step is not going to destroy me. And I think psychologically having a coach would be really good. Okay, this is what we're gonna do today. This is all we're gonna do today. Because that's the other problem with people with ME is when we have a good day, we want to do everything that we haven't been doing and we put ourselves back into a crash. So um, there have been some huge, or what felt at the time, huge leaps of faith necessary to move me from bed to 
published author. And a lot of my relationships have had to adjust along with that. Um, being uh, functional, functionally non-functioning, for so many years, my family was used to doing everything around me and not taking um, my opinions into account as long as the work got done, kind of. And it was a real shock to them the first day that I was strong enough to raise my voice and say, no, do it now this way. They hadn't heard that. My children hadn't heard that voice since they were 10 and 12 was the last time I had been strong enough to raise my voice to them. So it was a big shock for them too. Wow. But I don't have any, any um, words of wisdom except to, to recognize when you are terrified, weigh the risks and decide what you can do to break through that terror, whether it's a good thing at this point to do that. It is frightening both ways. It's frightening to be so ill and it's frightening to sort of push the envelope to see, can you take that extra step? That's the, oh, thank you. You know, I'm glad that you go back around these issues because the, the other point that I wanted to say, if I can remember it long enough, because, you know, a whole hour's conversation is a lot for me. It may come back. It may come back. Okay, let's talk about something else. And sure. Uh, so now that you've finished is it a trilogy or is there a yes. okay so now that you've finished this huge chunk of work what's what's next first of all there's a lot of promotion that has to be done and because of course i can't you know get up and go out and do stuff i do a lot of i do it online mostly the second book in the trilogy is coming out in two weeks uh, it's called where the ice falls and it's a christmas mystery and it also deals with assisted dying, which is something that's on the mind of the chronically ill community a lot. Um, frankly, a lot of us are suicidal a lot of the time. And I think that a lot more of us would suicide if we had the energy. I was certainly in that phase for a good chunk of my life. Um, but also under Canadian law, we would never qualify for assisted dying because we're not within sight of uh, within sight of a natural death, right? Mm -hmm. We aren't reasonably, our deaths are not reasonably foreseeable. Uh, so we're kind of in this limbo whereby we would really like to have an escape button, an out, a way to end it all, uh, because our day-to-day -day life is quite often, frankly, intolerable. Um, and we don't have that under the current law. So it's not Jan who's dealing with that in the second book. Um, Jan gets to go on a cruise to try the geographical cure in the second book, and she really enjoys it. You don't have to pack and unpack. You can lay on your balcony privately if you want to not talk to anybody, get your meals delivered. You're at sea level. You're breathing all this heavily oxygenated air. So what's next for me is kind of something that my friend uh, Jan, the psychologist with Emmy, and I have been discussing a lot lately is that my first reaction was, okay, now I'm done. Now I can give up. I don't need to push myself anymore. I could die tomorrow and I would die okay because I have got this done. 
And I'm not used to having every day not be a struggle. What has been keeping me going for the past five years is getting these books out there. My agent has another book project that she'd like me to tackle when I feel well enough, but there's no deadline on it. So if I decide that I really need a year to just be myself and not struggle, I can do that. And it's nice to have that option. Um, Canadian authors, by and large, don't get rich off their writing. I'm still really broke. But I have the option to not force, not run my entire 15 minutes an hour year round around staying healthy enough to write. And so I'm kind of thinking I might save up my 15 minutes an hour and do something really fun like work on a radio play with some of my writer friends. I cannot not be creative. I cannot not write at all, but I don't have to write for publication. And I can maybe do some other fun things with my 15 minutes again. That sounds awesome. And in terms of ME potential treatments or symptom treatments, anything on your immediate horizon? Uh, well, there's nothing new coming up, but the two things that have made the most difference for me recently were two years ago, or coming up to two years ago, I started on low-dose naltrexone. Very low and slow, adjusting because uh, low-dose naltrexone works directly on um, your uh, receptors, endorphin receptors in your brain. And so I think a lot of people expect it to work like a normal drug in which it just does the thing. But what it really is doing is rewiring your brain chemistry, which you want to take low and slow so that you don't trigger any new things. So uh, low-dose naltrexone was a big one for calming my brain down and allowing me to work through the panic of, not, of when I completely forget things, when I run into that hole in my brain that's left over from the hyponatremia. Um, and then eight months ago, I started on uh, a very low dose of mestinon based on the trials by Dr. David Sistrom at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he was getting referred a lot of people who were, a lot of women who were exercise intolerant for unexplained reasons. And he discovered that this very old fairly well-researched myasthenia gravis drug in low doses helps them to get more nutrients into their cells, which alleviates some of the aerobic deficit that our muscles and virtually every cell in our body has. Now, not all of us are responders to it, but you know very quickly if you're a responder. And I, <laughs> The second day that I was on this very low dose of Mestinon, someone who's known me for 30 years came in and said, you look taller today. And what it was, was for the first time in over 25 years, 27 years, my head and neck were, the muscles in my head and neck were strong enough to support it upright. 
without pain and without that slow collapse that happens when your muscles are just not strong enough. So when you mention the neck, it reminds me of uh, Jeff Wood and Jen Brea. Mm -hmm. Their stories with the cranial cervical instability. Yeah, and I think that's an I'm of two minds about that. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. If they had had, if their muscle tone had been addressed early by Mestinol or some other drug, if their, if the other structures in their necks would have been that malformed or whether they were born with it or not. I think it's an exciting area of research but I think that there are an awful lot of us for whom the problem is not severe enough to be corrected surgically, which, and it's a very risky um, procedure. And any anesthetic is very dangerous for anyone with mitochondrial complications. Uh, so if I wanna say this to anybody who listens to this, if you have ME or any mitochondrial disorder, you really want to find the mitochondrial emergency alert card that you can print out online and put it in your wallet so that if you're ever in an accident, the paramedics do not give you something that is going to make you a lot worse. That would normally you know, be a life-saving thing. And of course, I can't remember what exactly that is, but uh, I, can, I can give you the link to where that yeah, could you? That would be awesome. I'll include it in the show notes so people can just click on the link. Yeah, I didn't know about it either until I met someone whose son, young son, didn't have, they hadn't yet suspected a mitochondrial disorder. He went in for surgery for his appendix and he came out uh, with complete brain damage. Oh. And he is a lifelong unable to help himself at all because of the anesthetic, which should have been perfectly safe and would have been perfectly safe if he hadn't had this unsuspected mitochondrial compromise. Wow. So there are procedures that people with ME should be following if they have to have surgery. They should make their anesthetics, anesthesiologists aware of it and their surgeons. Um, their pre-op and post-operative care should be, should be adjusted for mitochondrial protocols. That's good to know. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for creating a character with ME, which seems to be the first one. So I think that in and of itself is uh, noteworthy. I hope it does the job. And I hope that um, people with ME who are listening to this can find some joyful thing that they can do even for five minutes a day if not five minutes an hour that will give them a sense of peace and progress and hope well thanks to jane for sharing her story what a compelling life and career jane has manufactured from what was a torturous existence of sickness disability and isolation it is the stories of triumphs over medical error, triumphs over limited health and limiting abilities that shine a light on the strength of the human spirit. Check out Jane's books 
to see the tangible results of her inner strength and talent. You can subscribe to Medical Air Interviews on iTunes, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can also become a patron by going to patreon.com slash medicalairinterviews and become a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Do you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with your own medical error or for living with a chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.